0: Amen, boy. It's just hard for me to believe another year is is done with the mine, and we are uh, we finished up another year. It's just wow, time really goes by. But I've enjoyed this year with you. Looking forward again to the summer Bible study in June, and then coming back in August, we've got some exciting studies next year. We're going to be looking. Uh, in our fall semester, August through December, at the Letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Great letters, and I hope you'll be with us at that time as well. 1st John, or 1st John, I got 1st John on the brain. 1st Peter, chapter 5 tonight. We're talking uh, about how to navigate hard times in our life, and Peter certainly knew what hard times were like, and a lot of what Peter writes in 1 Peter and 2 Peter can really help us and enlighten us and encourage us in navigating those hard times of our life. In fact, uh, 1 Peter would probably be one of those books of the Bible that when I'm going through hard times, I would, I would constantly, continually go back to. A lot in there. And tonight, we're going to share some of that with you tonight. Now, the first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, to many, seem out of place, because last week in the context, we were talking about going through suffering, going through trial and how to deal with it, how to get through it, what, what can help us, and then when you come to chapter 5, verse 5, through the rest of that chapter, it's all about how do we get through hard times, how do we get through suffering, how do we get through trial. And sort of like in the middle of this passage in 1 Peter 4 and 5, you have this four verse, it seems, interruption. It is Peter directing his attention to the elders or spiritual leaders of the church. And many look at these four verses and go, what do they have to do with what Peter is talking about before and after? I think it has everything to do with what Peter is talking about. For, for one primary reason, before I read these verses tonight, let, let's all be reminded that when we're going through hard times, when we're going through difficult times, one of the things that can be such a, an encouragement to us or, or even such a light to us is seeing others as godly examples of how I should navigate that time or looking to examples of others who've been through hard times and learning from their example of how to do it. So being a spiritual leader and being a good spiritual leader and being an example to other Christians is huge. I think so that's why God places it here. First of all, he's challenging all of us to be good examples to others who may be looking around watching, how do I get through times like this? Well, I'm going to look at some people that claim to be Christians and see if maybe they can help me to get through times like this. And then all of us need other people in our life that we can look to as good examples to follow during times like this. Examples of spiritual stability, Examples of spiritual composure, examples of spiritual depth that can help us. It, it's sort of like seeing that, that lighthouse that I'm getting you know, close to the shore and, and I've got something there to navigate by. That's what spiritual leaders and, and Christians are to be all about. So notice Peter writes, So as your fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, And as one who shares in the glory that will be revealed, I urge the elders among you, give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you, exercising oversight, not merely as a duty, but willingly under God's direction, not for shameful profit, but eagerly. And do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. Now there's a lot in these verses, but the, the part that I want to concentrate on tonight is that part about being a good example. Because whether we're spiritual leaders in the church or whether we're not, God calls upon all of us as Christians to be growing to the point where we can be good, positive, godly examples to others who are looking to someone to say, how do I get through times like this. And maybe you've only been a Christian for two years, but maybe the person who's looking to you has only been a Christian for a month. And so you're still further along than what they are on their journey with Christ. And so all people are looking to other people to get some kind of cue from. In fact, this is where I'm going to land Sunday on Mother's Day. I want to talk about the influence of mothers in our lives. Some good, some not so good. But mothers have always been a huge influence in most people's lives. And what I want to take from that is that God wants us to be an influence in other people's lives. And maybe by looking at a model mother, we can learn some things to incorporate into our lives so that we can be a more positive, godly influence in other people's lives. So this message on Sunday is not just going to be for moms. It's going to be for, for males, for, for people who aren't even married, for, for whatever. It's going to be for everybody here on Sunday. Because we're going to talk about, in a sense, the power of influence in our lives. And that's what Peter's talking about here. I, I do want to point this out. This is so cool. Notice back up in chapter 5, verse 1, that Peter is writing this. And he's basically so sure that what God has promised is going to come to pass. That he has come to a place in his walk with God that if God said it, that settles it with Peter. It's as good as has already happened that notice what he writes again in chapter 5 verse 1. He says, I am your fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, as one who shares in the glory that will be revealed. You see, in Peter's mind, he is already sharing the glory of heaven. And he's already sharing the, in the glory that is, God has promised is going to come one day. Now, it actually hasn't happened yet. But from Peter's perspective, it's as good as if it has happened. And in Peter's way, and I think in in a way that we can understand, we already do share in that glory. If we'll open up our eyes of faith and look through the Bible at the way God is working in this world and the way God is working in our lives and all of that, that we're already sharing a foretaste of the glory that one day is going to be ours one day. Whether it's through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives already, however you want to look at that. And that's what Peter says. We can already begin to share the glory that hasn't even sort of fallen completely yet on this world. Of course, he talks to spiritual leaders as shepherds. Shepherds were always sort of a a New Testament metaphor for spiritual leadership. That God's people are a flock of sheep and that spiritual leaders are to shepherd them. And as Peter goes on to say, any in spiritual leadership are not to drive the sheep, they are to lead the sheep. They are not to drive them from behind, they are to lead them from in front. Which is why then he goes on to tell spiritual leaders some things that should be true in their lives as spiritual leaders. That first of all, they should not be exercising this oversight merely as a duty but as a calling, that they should be doing this willingly under God's direction, not just trying to do it by their own wit and wisdom. And they should never do it for profit, but they should do it eagerly. And they should not lord it over those entrusted to them, but again, Peter says, let's be examples to the flock. And if you go back to Peter's life as we even talked about last week, we can see how powerful this was because I'm sure as Peter was writing about the importance of being a good, positive, godly example, that there were some moments in Peter's life that he was like, yeah, that's, a, that's an example I would like to set beside before the people of God. But then there were other times in Peter's life where it was like, oh, not so much. When Peter was walking on the water, yeah, there's an example for fellow believers to follow. When Peter's denying the Lord, no, that's not a a good time in Peter's life. So Peter had some great moments. He also had some, in a sense, not so great moments with the Lord. But Peter understood in walking with God the importance of being a godly example. And then he reminds the spiritual leaders in verse 4 that when Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. In Peter's day, athletes were given laurel wreaths or some kind of reward in the Olympic or Izmythian Games when they won. And Peter said, you realize that all that hard work, all that focus, all that energy was to get a reward, but that reward was going to fade. That, that reward was going was to fall off. That, that reward was going to be tarnished at some point. It was going to lose its luster. But the reward that you and I get for following the Lord Jesus Christ and being for committed to Him is a reward that will never fade away. As we said last week, we will never get into eternity and wish that somehow we would have been a less committed Christian. No, we're going to get into eternity and wish we were a more committed Christian. Christian than what we were, that we walked with God a little bit closer, that we maybe read and studied our Bibles a little bit more, that we prayed a little bit more, that we shared Christ a little bit more. There's never going to be that moment where we are, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have been so caught up with Jesus Christ. That will never be the case with a Christian. So then verse five, if spiritual leaders are to be good examples then those underneath their leadership are to be good followers. Because one of the things that Peter talked about last week is one of the last things you want to see amongst God's people is that when we're going through hard times, that we turn on each other. Remember last week he said, "No, that we need each other more than ever when we're going through hard times. That's why he said, "You know, be devoted to each other, to, to truly love each other with the love of God. And help each other and show each other hospitality and minister to each other and share your spiritual gifts with each other so that you can build each other up. And remember, love covers a multitude of sins. So by God's love operating in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, learn to forgive each other and overlook the faults of your brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can stay unified and so that we can present a solid front to our spiritual enemy who's trying to bring us down be good followers. One of the reasons why I believe God chose sheep to be a metaphor for us as Christians is because sheep are always wandering off. They're just prone to wander. Yeah, it's like, oh, I think I'll go my own way. And that's why we need a shepherd. That's why we need shepherds in our life. Because as sheep, we're just prone to sort of wander off on our own path. And in order for God to keep us on his path, we need to have that shepherd to look to for leadership. So that's why we need to be good followers. In fact, as I point out to people, you will never see the word or word spiritual leader in your Bible. I think a spiritual leader is just somebody who's become a really good follower of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, all of us are followers of Jesus Christ. And we are to learn to follow. If I can't follow my shepherd, then that's, that's where it breaks down right there. Then, then I certainly don't want someone following me, because Paul even said, follow me as I follow Christ. But if I'm not following Christ at that point, then anyone who's following me, I'm just leading them down the wrong path. And so I need to learn to be a good follower. That's why Peter says, in the same way, verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now in this context too, when he talks about elders and younger, he's not talking about physical age. He's using these terms as a way of talking about spiritual maturity and those who are less mature in the body of Christ has nothing to do with physical age. It's just our spiritual growth and maturity and where we are in our walk with God. And he's simply asking all of us, no matter where we are in the body of Christ, that all of us, he says, should clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Again, one of the things that can become so divisive in the body of Christ is when some of us get lifted up in pride and begin to think we're better than other people in the body of Christ. And the message of the New Testament is no, never, that no one Christian is more important or more valuable to the body than any other. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, the eye, using the body as a metaphor, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Every part of the body is important. And Paul goes on to point out those parts of the body that we don't think are very important, wait till something happens to them. Then all of a sudden we notice them. I mean, I used to wonder when I was a kid, why did God give us toenails? Until one day in football practice, I had my toenail crushed and my toenail fell off. Try putting a sock on without a toenail. Oh my golly! I'm like, oh, that's all I cared about was a toenail. <laughs> I never thought about toenails before, but watch that toenail, or that, you know. Oh my goodness, that's all you think about, because every part of the body, if it's working the way it should, if it's operating the way it should, then we don't. But even the smallest parts of our body, when they're not operating like they should, they stand out really a lot, and it's, all of a sudden that's that's our focus right there. That's why every part of the body is important. No part of the body is more important than the other. So all of us have to clothe ourselves with humility. And I love that term because in Peter's day, people who were servants wore aprons. They they put an apron on, and it was sort of like a badge of honor, really, that I'm here to serve you. In fact, one of our just one example of our modern day places that, that symbolize that, and I'm not promoting it, but I do drink. It every once in a while. Starbucks. When you go into Starbucks, the baristas have aprons. Those aprons actually are an ancient symbol of service. That's the way it was in biblical times. When you were going to do something, you rolled up your sleeves, you put on a service apron, and in a sense, you, you got dirty. And anyone who's ever worked or been around Starbucks knows that at the end of the day, those baristas have mocha syrup and and espresso and all kinds of stuff all on their apron because that apron is a sign of service. What Peter is saying to every Christian is every day I should wake up and I should clothe myself with humility. I should put humility on like an apron and I should walk out the door of my front door ready to serve others not just to be served ready to follow the example of Christ who even as the son of God came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many that's the mindset that we remember because in hard times one of the natural instincts that we will have is to turn inward to make it all about us to start closing in and just protecting us and and that survival instinct and yet one of the best things we can do is keep our focus outward rather than focusing inward because if we continue to do that our world will continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller and as we continue to look out to others and serve others and see the needs around us All of a sudden, we don't have time to drown in our own thoughts all day and feel sorry for ourselves and what we're going through and what we're dealing with that we find that there's other people out there who are struggling just as much as we are, who are hurting just as much as we are, and maybe we can even mutually encourage each other if all of us are willing to clothe ourselves with humility. Another thing that that means is that not only I'm willing to serve, but I'm willing to allow others to serve me. One of the hard things for some Christians is to get to the point where they're willing to let other people do for them. They love it when they do for others. They always want to be needed and they want to be out there always serving and ministering to others. But they don't like it when the shoe's on the other foot. And all of a sudden they're in a position in life where they have to maybe get help from somebody else. But let me tell you something. From the, from the Bible itself and even from personal experience. There are going to be times where God is going to humble us if we don't humble ourselves. And there's going to be some times in our life where no matter who we are or what we are or whatever, we're going to need help outside of ourselves. And we need to be willing to humble ourselves and ask for that help. Even if it's just asking other Christian brothers and sisters to pray for us. I mean, all through the New Testament. One of the things you see Paul doing all the time is asking people to pray for him. That's, that's humbling because that's saying, I can't do this by myself. I need you praying for me. I, I need your help. I need your encouragement. And that's the way as Christians we should relate and live amongst each other. Notice, here's the reason why. We need to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble if I want to get through hard times, folks, I need God's grace. It is a must in my life. It's not something that is, you know, well, I'll take it or leave it. I need God's grace every day, but I especially need God's grace getting through hard times. And yet if I'm lifted up in pride, and I'm basically telling God in my pride, God, I don't need you, I can handle this on my own, I can figure this out on my own, I don't need you, then God will say, fine. Because God is a perfect gentleman. And God will not force himself or his grace on you or in your life if you don't want it. But when you and I humble ourselves before God and we show him our dependence, and we go to him and say, God, I need you, and we are praying, and we are showing God that kind of humility, then God will lavishly pour out all the grace that we need. And let's remember the teaching of the New Testament. His grace is absolutely sufficient for everything we will ever go through. So it doesn't matter how hard the times are, God's grace will more than match it. As we said last week, if I'm going through a situation on a scale of one to ten that's like a seven in intensity, God will give me grace for an eight. He will more than give me the grace, because God's grace that he pours out in our lives is supernatural ability to deal with life. That's why Paul said, it's by the grace of God I am that I am, Because God will continue to pour out his grace as I humble myself before him and show him, God, I do need you. I cannot do this independently. See, part of the whole thing is I've either got to learn to be dependent or I'm going to continue to live my life independent of God even as a Christian. And so there are Christians out there that they're Christians, but they're, for the most part, living their life independent of God. They're living their lives in pride they're not finding the grace of God in their lives because God will not pour out his grace to those who are lifted up in pride. And then they wonder why they're struggling so much. It's because God's grace is nowhere to be found because they're still trying to do it on their own. You you all have heard this story a bazillion times. I'm not going to go through it. But one of the reasons that got me beginning to get out of that, the grip that anxiety and all of that had in my life was stopping trying to figure it out on my own and looking to God and and maybe even the help of others instead of trying to do it myself that's what Peter's saying and let's remember Peter knows what he's talking about because remember Peter was the guy that said Lord I will never deny you remember that Peter knew what it was like to be loved. God, maybe these other 11 guys will deny you. I will never deny. I mean, it's emphatic. He's basically telling the Lord, I will never deny you. And Jesus turns to him and said, Peter, before the night's over, when you hear the cock crow three times in the morning, you're going to have denied me three times. I'm sure that just blew Peter away. Because again, like when we are lifted up in pride, we don't see it coming until it runs us over. And then we look up and go, yeah, I guess you were right, God. Again, that's why Jesus encouraged the disciples to watch and pray in the garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed. That whole purpose of humbling ourselves, of saying, God, I need you at this moment. I cannot do this by myself. And so Peter knew the lesson of humility, firsthand what he's writing to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he knows very very well and he wants us to live in such a way of constant dependence and humility on God that God's grace will just be ever flowing in my life because if if I don't allow God's grace to overwhelm my life and I basically try to go through life independently of God and try to deal with this all on my own When hard times come, and I've rejected and pushed away the grace of God, the Bible teaches me that what will happen is I will become a very bitter person. Because the Bible says, those who reject God's grace and push it away will get bitter. They won't get better, they will get bitter because of their circumstances. And you and I have known many Christians, maybe we've even been there at some time in our life, where because we push God away out of our lives, where we push God's grace away out of our lives, we became bitter during a circumstance in our lives because of the grace of God not being evident at that point. Now notice what he says in verse 6. And God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand. First of all, Peter's saying, look, God's not going to allow you to stay in that state of humility underneath that set of circumstances or underneath that that trial forever there's a spiritual purpose of why he's allowing you in that state and just like joseph in the book of genesis god is teaching joseph through the pit and through the prison experience A lot of valuable lessons so that when God finally takes Joseph out of the prison and exalts him to the second most powerful person and role on the planet at that point, only below Pharaoh in Egypt, Joseph will be ready for that experience because he's going to have learned a lot of valuable lessons that he could have never learned by not going through what he went through. And he's going to be much stronger because he went through those than if he would have never went through them. See, God, if he's allowing these things in my life, again, it's never to discourage me. It's never to destroy me. It's to make me stronger. And so Peter says, look, God will exalt you at exactly the right time. He will bring you and I up out of that experience. He won't let us underneath of that forever. And notice Peter also reminds us, we're talking about God's mighty hand here. God's strong arm. There's nothing more mighty than God. And so when God wants us to bring us up out of that that is over us, he can do it with no problem. In fact, The book of Exodus uses this same terminology to speak about the mighty hand of God that went into Egypt and brought his people out. God said, I'm bringing them out with a mighty hand and a strong arm. I am going to wrench my people out of the grips of Egypt, out of the grips of Pharaoh, and I'm going to bring them out of slavery after 400 years. And God was saying to his people... If I can loosen the grips of Pharaoh. If I can loosen the grips of Egypt. If I can bring you out of slavery after 400 years. I am the mighty God who has a strong arm and a mighty hand. And I can bring you up and out of anything when it's the right time. The other thing. If you and I humble ourselves under his mighty hand. You see. And I've been there. We've all probably been there. We've been in situations in our life, like the baby, who doesn't want to go to sleep, and the baby's just squirming and everything, and I don't want to go to sleep, and it's cranky, and it's just fighting sleep. And all the parent wants to do is just get that baby to sleep. And the baby is just fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. And the baby is more getting more miserable and more miserable because it's just fighting. And when the baby finally is done fighting and just relaxes and rests in the arms of the parent, the baby falls asleep and rests. And that's exactly, many times in our life, what we are to God as a Christian. I've been there. Jeff Royce has been in the loving arms of my heavenly father, but I've been fighting it. God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be going through this. God, get me out of this. God, I don't want to. And we just keep fighting and struggling against God's mighty arms that are wrapped around us. And all we've got to do at that moment to experience rest is just rest and trust in God and in a sense fall asleep in his loving arms. But we keep struggling and we keep fighting against where God wants us to be at the moment. And God says, child, if you just rest, you could experience what I want you to experience instead of fighting against me. That's why he says, humble ourselves under that mighty hand. Because there's a reason why God hasn't changed that yet. There's a reason why God hasn't brought me out of that yet God may need to let me in that experience for another week or another month in order to get the full weight and the full benefit from what I'm under right now so that when I come out the other side I'm even stronger than when I went in again best biblical example of that is Joseph and you just can't turn to another example that's any better than Joseph for that example But again, I've got to humble myself. If I think I know what's best, if I think I know more than God, then I'm going to struggle and I'm going to kick and I'm going to scream against God when I'm in a situation that I don't want to be in rather than just trusting and resting in his arms. And then verse 7. Another way that we show God humility Verse 7, one of my favorite verses. This was a huge verse for me when I was struggling with anxiety, especially. By casting 75% of your cares? No. All your cares. And let's remember something about studying the Bible. All means all, and that's all all means. And when the Bible says... To Jeff Royce, Jeff, I want you to cast all your care on me and here's, because I care for you. Wow. Wow. God is reminding me how much he cares for me that he wants to take those cares and he wants to bear those cares rather than me trying to carry those cares. And here's the cool thing about God. Whatever you and I care about, He cares about. That's how much He cares about it. If it's a care to us, it's a care to Him. But all God is saying is, My child, show me some humility. Don't try to carry that around by yourself. I never intended for you to carry that weight around. I never meant for you to carry that weight around. Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you and I are going through life, like I did at one time, and I felt like I was always, every day, carrying around 1,000 pounds on my back. That 1,000 pounds didn't get there on my back by God. God didn't put that weight on me. I placed that weight on my own back. Or I allowed other people to place that weight on my own back. And God kept trying to tell me, 1 Peter 5, 7, Jeff, you realize that if you keep carrying that weight on your back, those burdens, those cares that I never meant for any human being to carry, eventually your body is going to break down physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And that's exactly what happened. That's what happens to all of us. That's why for some of us, we we get overcome with anxiety and start having panic attacks. For other people, it's headaches or migraine headaches. For other people, it's gastrointestinal problems like ulcers and and all kinds of, of churning in their stomach and We all have these coping mechanisms whenever we're carrying weight around that we should never carry. And when we carry it long enough, and it's heavy enough, eventually our physical bodies are going to break down under that weight and under that pressure. And that's why even today, we have so many people in the world who are carrying around all these weights. And God is saying to us, child. Throw that weight over on me. I love the word casting. It's literally the same word that's used in the Gospels whenever they would take off their cloak or something and they would throw it somewhere and and rest it. God is saying, I don't care what the care is. If it's a care for you, it's a care for me. But I never meant for you to carry that. So throw that off of yourself and throw it over on me and let me carry it. The picture that I used to use in my mind was that I would be carrying this like heavy backpack on my back with bricks. I mean, that's how it felt. Every day I would wake up, my chest would be heavy. I just felt like I was being weighed down by the world. And God kept speaking to me saying, Jeff, here's how you navigate hard times in your life. Don't carry those weights by yourself. Take those weights, those things you're carrying, and literally throw them over on the mighty back of God and let me carry them so that your yoke can be easy and your burden light. And when I began to learn the principle of 1 Peter 5, 7, of as the cares came into my life, just throwing them over on God, wow, how much different did my outlook on life become. Because casting our cares on God, because he cares for us, is also a sign of our humility. That I'm not trying to carry this around by myself, and figure this out myself, and do it myself. God, this is bigger than me. This is weighing me down. This is destroying me, God. This is robbing me of my health. God, I'm going to throw it over on you, because you care for me. Then we come to verse 8. A verse that talks about our spiritual enemy, the devil. Well, what's that have to do with the context of what we're talking about for this very reason? Peter ends verse 7 talking about how much God cares for us. Do you know the single thing that the devil will try to plant doubt in our minds about is the care of God? Because he's done it ever since the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. You read the strategy of Satan in the, the Bible, and every time you will see that every time what Satan is trying to do with everybody is to cast doubt on the character of God, to cast doubt in people's minds that God really cares about them. That's, that's his strategy. Whether you're talking about Eve, whether you're talking about even Jesus when he was tempted by the devil, even when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil had the same strategy. It was, well, you know, Jesus, you, you've been pretty hungry. You've been out here for 40 days without any food. You know, Shouldn't you turn those those rocks into bread and take care of yourself? I don't think your Heavenly Father is going to come through for you this time. Always casting doubt. You see, that's where sometimes the biggest battle is in the mind. Where it's so easy for our spiritual enemy to begin to plant those seeds of doubt in our mind. God really doesn't care about you. We've all been there. I've heard those same Voices and thoughts in my head from the devil. Jeff, if God really cared about you, he wouldn't be allowing you to go under this right now. Or God would have gotten you out of this. Or or something to that degree to where all Satan wants to do is begin to plant seeds of doubt. Peter says, don't doubt the care of God. And be alert, verse 8. Because... Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. First of all, he says to us as Christians, if we're going to navigate hard times, we've got to humble ourselves. And all that that entails. We've got to follow good examples during hard times. We can't be following somebody out there that doesn't know where where they're going we've got to find some godly people in our lives that we can look to and get our cue from and we've got to humble ourselves and then we've got to be alert to the fact that the devil doesn't play fair and the devil will try to kick us when we are down and the devil though he's not god and certainly not omniscient he's at least intelligent enough to know what we're going through by observation and he he knows when we're vulnerable he, he, can, he can look back with all of his minions and he can see the times are tough on the earth right now. He can see that people are losing their jobs and all these different things and all these fears and all that. And so Satan being the intelligent being that God, he, he knows when we're vulnerable. And so he will take these hard times and try to capitalize on them. Trying to even get Christians to doubt the goodness and care of God for them. To take upon themselves the burdens of this life rather than learning to cast those burdens on the Lord. See, because all Satan wants to do is to destroy us. That's all he cares about. And Satan knows that if he can get even Christians to carry around the weight of the world on their shoulders long enough, they're just going to start going down pretty quickly. They're going to start breaking down physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The weight of the world is going to start crushing them. And that's what Satan wants. There's nothing that brings more joy to Satan than seeing followers of Jesus Christ just crushed under the weight of the world. Because we got to a point in our life where we forgot about God's goodness And care for us. Where we began to doubt it. Where we stopped humbling ourselves and taking our cares and our burdens to the Lord in prayer. And casting them onto the Lord. No, we were going to shoulder them all ourselves. And Satan just sits back and laughs. Because it's needless, folks. It's needless. Take it from someone who can tell you from personal experience in my own Christian life. It was needless for Jeff Royce for one day of my life as a Christian to carry that weight on my own back. Whenever I had a God whose shoulders were big enough and who wanted to carry that weight for me, I never needed to carry it by myself. Another thing we learn about the devil is that he is a roaring lion. And I don't think there's any accident there that the Bible compares the devil to a lion. If you study the hunting tactics of lions, lions will exhibit Or exert themselves no more than they have to. They don't go into a full pack of animals and try to... No. They sit back and they watch for those who are separated from the pack. They watch for those who are weak. They watch for those who are sick. They watch for those who are lagging behind the rest of the pack. And those are the ones they go after. See, they try to separate. And that's exactly what Satan tries to do with Christians. He tries to separate us. Doesn't want us coming together. Doesn't want us encouraging each other as we've learned in 1 Peter chapter 4. Wants to keep us out there on our own. Wants us to get to the point where we are so isolated that that we don't see anyone around us and where we think we're the only ones in the world going through this. We're the only ones thinking this way. We're the only ones dealing with this. And we feel pretty alone, pretty lonely, pretty helpless, pretty hopeless. That's exactly where the lion wants to get us. Pretty graphic term, too, when Peter says he's on the prowl looking for someone to devour. That word devour literally means to swallow whole. I hope I don't gross anybody out, but every once in a while I get the stomach to watch some of these nature shows. I don't know why I do, because I get grossed out every time. Like when I see this huge anaconda just swallowing something whole, and this big bump going down through the snake's. Ew. But that's exactly, what Peter, that's exactly what Satan wants to do to us. He literally just wants to swallow us up. He doesn't want to help us. He doesn't want to encourage us. He doesn't want to strengthen us. He wants to destroy us. And the word devil, as I've taught before, means one who comes between. And the devil will do everything he can to come between you and your God, you and your spouse... You and your children, you and your parents, you and your friends, you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. He is, his mission in the universe at this point is to do as much damage between relationships as he possibly can do. That's what the devil's all about. One who comes between. But notice what the Bible says, verse 9. Don't run from him. Resist him. And listen, folks. If we did not have the capacity to resist the onslaught of our lion, our spiritual enemy, then the Bible wouldn't say to do it. The reason the Bible says to every Christian to resist him is because he can be resisted. There is no Christian out there that has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them who does not have the resource to be able to resist the devil himself if the devil came against us. Because the one who is in you and in me is greater than the devil. So the Bible says resist him. And here's how. Strong in your faith. See again. The area where the devil will attack is do I trust God or not? Do I believe God or not? Do I really believe he cares about me or not? That's where he's going to attack if I stay strong in my faith, If I keep trusting, if I keep believing, if I keep putting my confidence in God that no matter what my circumstances are, no matter how dark the days are, no matter how bleak the future looks, that I'm not living by sight, I'm living by faith, I'm trusting in this book here to get me through, it's my lamp, it's my light, I'm trusting in it, then the devil will have no power over you in your life. Your faith will defeat the devil. And let me just give a plug for Bible study. Since I do plenty of them around here, the Bible says the best way to keep your faith in God strong is through studying the Bible. Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You want to keep your faith strong to be able to resist the devil, keep studying the Word of God of God. Notice another thing, verse 9, because you know also by faith that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same kinds of suffering. Again, one of the strategies of the devil is that by isolating us and making us feel like we're going through this all alone is that we begin to feel alone and we begin to feel like we're the only ones Going through and one of the things that Peter did to encourage these Christians who were going through hard times saying, Hey, you realize, right? That there are so many other Christians who are going through persecution for their faith in Christ just like you. You realize, don't you, that there are other Christians being martyred for their faith. There are other Christians being thrown to the lions. There are other Christians that are being sewn up into the stomachs of wild animals. There are other Christians that are having to carry dead bodies around and getting racked with all kinds. You realize, he said, that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through the same kind of suffering you are, right? So you're not alone. There's a solidarity amongst God's people. And we need to remember that when we go through hard times. Because again, we can get to that place where I bet nobody else is thinking like I'm thinking. I bet nobody else is going through the depths that I'm going through. I bet nobody else is struggling like I'm struggling. Eh, wrong. Not the case. In fact, again, one of the freeing things that began to to, to disarm the power that anxiety had over me in my life is when, be, when I began to, and I realized I had to be careful who I shared it with. I had to share it with people that, that were safe, people that I trusted, but when I began to share my struggle with anxiety with other people, it was amazing to me out there how many other people were struggling with it. And there was a time in my life, I thought I was, I thought I was nuts. Well, I am, but I, I really thought I was nuts. And I began to tell them, I must be crazy. And then I would talk to somebody, I said, like, no, I thought the same thing. And there's something weird about like, well, okay, then both of us can't be crazy, can we? And if not, then let's just be crazy through this together. And there's, there was something about okay, I found somebody else who's struggling with the same thing. Folks, that's the way it is. It's Satan who wants to make us feel like we're all alone and we're out there on an island by ourselves. It's God who wants to remind us in his word that there's always other people out there who are thinking, who are struggling, who are going through the same things that we are. And instead of Beaten on each other, we need to encourage each other through our struggles. Verse 10. Oh man, I could preach for another hour. Okay, I'll wrap this up. And after you have suffered for a little while, let me stop. First of all, the Bible does teach us that we will suffer. Okay? So again, it's that expectation of some Christians, they think when they accept Christ as their Savior, oh man, I've, I'm going to have it good all my life. No. There's going to be times where I have to suffer and maybe suffer pretty intensely. It's all part of the plan of God. It's not foreign to the plan of God. It's not out of the... It's exactly what is part of, again, God strengthening us. But God does say this. He says, I'm comparing whatever suffering you're going through in a temporal way to eternity. I'm not minimizing what you're going through. I'm not minimizing, God says, the pain... The, the, the trial, the intensity of the suffering, and all, I'm, I'm just telling you as a Christian to keep in perspective that whatever you're going through from an eternal perspective is just for a little while. I mean, think about it. Even if I was born and I suffered intensely my whole life and I lived to be 100 years of age, and I suffered for all 100 years that I was alive on earth, compared to eternity... It's like a grain of sand on the seashore. Because remember something, eternity's forever. It never ends. So God is just saying, don't forget, folks, to keep that eternal perspective on our suffering. And then he says this, and he promises this, that the God of all grace Meaning that whatever grace I need to get through my time of suffering, God is the God of all grace who will dispense that grace if, as I have already learned in 1 Peter 5, I'm just willing to humble myself. And if I humble myself, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Remember, I've said this before. For the Christian, this is the only hell we will ever know. Don't forget that. For the Christian, this is the only hell we will ever know. And the God of all grace promises us that after we have suffered a while... And after we have been strengthened through that trial, after that fiery trial has purified us, after that fiery trial has brought us closer to God, after that fiery trial has strengthened our faith in God, after that fiery trial has been used to even touch other people's lives, God will make sure that all these things begin to come back to us in our lives. In a sense, the way I look at verse 10 is that my God can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I may fall off the wall and I may be broken, but my God can restore. He can confirm. He can strengthen. He can. Ast- and all these words have a little bit of a different nuance and meaning, but not too much. It's basically God can put us back together again. God can strengthen us. God can bring back stability and security in our lives after we've went through that time of... God will make sure it all... And in fact, it's even going to be better than it was before. That's the God of all grace and what He can do. Because again, remember, all these words that Peter is using, this is what God wants to do through that time of suffering. And He wants to establish us, that very last word of verse 10 there on an even firmer foundation, because that's what the word means, that God wants to set, in a sense, my spiritual feet on a, on a rock that's even stronger and firmer than it was before I went through that time of suffering. That in a sense, as I go through that, I'll even know more how much I can trust God. I'll even be more confident in God the next time I have a trial in my life. I will even trust God more. I'll even have more confidence in God. I will be established on an even firmer foundation. That's what God wants to do through our hard times. And so Peter says, what more could he say but to him belongs the power forever. Amen. As we close out First Peter, look at verse 12. Through Silvanus, whom I know to be a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Once again, he brings up God's grace. And what Peter is saying here is, I've written to you these words of First Peter, these five chapters. And in a sense, these words of First Peter... Are expressions of God's grace. Because they are promises. They are instruction. They are are principles that will help us get through the hardest times of our life. And in those principles, if we apply those principles and we take them to heart, there's grace in those principles. Grace to be able to get through those tough times. And Peter says, so stand fast in my teaching. Stand fast in this Stand fast in these words I've shared with you. Stand fast because in it is the very grace of God that will help us navigate the hardest times of our life. God wants us to stand on his word. His word is reliable. And when everything else in our life is topsy-turvy and crumbling around us, we can stand upon the word of God and it will keep us up. The church in Babylon, verse 13, chosen together with you, greets you, so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a loving kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. One comment before we close tonight. A lot of people question the phrase in the New Testament when Peter and Paul and other New Testament writers tell the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. What's that all about? (laughs) Why aren't we doing that today, you know? here's the deal. The language that Peter is using there has nothing to do with any kind of romantic or erotic expression. It was the kiss that a family member would give to another family member. It was a kiss that was usually either on the cheek, the forehead, or the hand. And it was a family expression of We're in the same family. We need to express our love for each other. And the reason that is so cool is because Peter, once again, in ending this letter, one of the last reminders he's giving to Christians is, treat your brothers and sisters in Christ with love. Tell them how much they mean to you. Show them Christian affection in the right way, because you're all part of the same family, the family of of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And though the devil is going to want to come between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to resist him, firm in our faith, and we need to stand and present a solid, unified front to our spiritual enemy. In fact, every local church and even the church over the world, it would be great if we could stand as one and say, Satan, you are not welcome here. Goodbye. We are standing together as God's people. That's why Peter ended 1 Peter 5 with greet one another with a holy kiss. Remember, remember, We are part of God's family. We are in this together and we need to stand together and stand up for each other and encourage each other through the struggles that we are going through. Before I close in prayer, again, I just want to say, folks, if you only knew the encouragement that you were to me, I I wish I could put that into words, but thank you all so much for a wonderful year in the mine. I've had a great year. I look forward to our summer Bible study, but I want to leave you with this. I believe tonight that Aaron McCray, who is our multi-site pastor, is going to be out in the lobby answering questions of any of you that have questions about multi-site I'm hoping and praying that there might even be some people here in the mine that you may feel sort of the tug of God or the call of God to be part of what God wants to do up there in South Scottsdale. That you would say to Aaron, I want to be part of that initial pioneering group that goes up, you know. For most of us, we weren't here 13 or 14 years ago when Cornerstone was started with about 30 people and to see what God did now. We weren't part of that pioneer group. And there's something about being part of a pioneer group that sometimes just energizes people. And sometimes that's the way God wired you and that's what God's calling you to. So here's another opportunity for some of you. If you want to be part of that pioneering group, to see how God begins to get things started in another location, to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you might have that opportunity to be part of that sort of pioneer team up there in South Scottsdale at Cornerstone Scottsdale rather than being here at Cornerstone Chandler for a time. And we're just going to let that between you and God. But if you have some questions, listen, in a couple weeks... You're going to get a lot of your questions answered. Pastor Lynn's going to interview Pastor Aaron right here on stage on May 17th. Talk to our folks more about what our vision is for for our multi-site campus up there in Scottsdale. But some of you may want to talk to Aaron about that even tonight. He will be available out at the information table if any of you would like to stop by and talk to him about that. Also, I just want to love on you for another minute. Do you guys realize that after... I brought Kimmy up on stage last week, and we prayed for her that her support level went from in the 70s to almost 90%. <laughs> yeah, you all, you all. Because I know that some of you who were here last week stepped up and said, I- I'm going to start supporting Kimmy on a monthly basis. And she's getting ready to go, and we're just so proud of her and what God's going to do in her life. But can I just tell you, some of you right here are the reason that she's able to go and has the support to be able to go to Boston and start that ministry back there with the international students. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I hope you folks have a great three or four weeks until we meet back here on June the 2nd. I'm going to miss you terribly, but I will see you around. And if you're here on Sunday, I'll certainly see you one of those five services on Sunday. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for just, again, a wonderful year of Bible study, a a wonderful group of people, a group of people, Lord, who just bless my heart tremendously every week and are such an encouragement to me. God, would you bless them as only you can. Keep us strong, Lord. Keep us humble. Keep us, Lord, right where we need to be in our lives to be able to navigate these hard times that we find ourselves in going through. And God will give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, have a great week. We'll see you in a couple weeks.